Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, in the classic The Wizard of Oz, we overhear a conversation between Dorothy and the Scarecrow, and it goes something like this. Tell me something about yourself and the country that you came from, the Scarecrow said. So Dorothy told him all about Kansas and how gray everything was there. And the Scarecrow listened and said, I can't understand why you would wish to leave this beautiful country and go back to that, go back to that dry, gray place that you call Kansas. That's because you have no brains, said the girl. No matter how dreary and gray our homes are, we people of flesh and blood would rather live here than in any other country, be it ever so beautiful. There's really no place like home. And the scarecrow sighed. Well, of course I cannot understand it. If your heads were stuffed with straw, you would probably all live in beautiful places, and then Kansas would have no people at all. It's fortunate for Kansas that you have brains. <laughs> now, before we turn this into a Kansas bashing event, there's plenty of realities that are true for all of us in this. And I think Dorothy is perhaps, at least for me, one of the best examples throughout fiction of this intrinsic desire that we have to find a place called home. She searches for it. She goes through incredible odds to find the place. And when she reaches it, we all felt, feel this deep well of joy that starts to spring up because we all know what that feels like when we reach the place we've been desperately longing to reach. And there's kind of this nostalgia, I think, that goes along with home. Take me, for example. I grew up in what I would probably say is one of those dry, uh, gray, uh, dreary places uh, like Kansas, a small town in Ohio. I could tell you all the bad things about the town that I grew up of, grew up in, like all the bad things. I won't right now because that's not nice to them. But I could tell you all the bad things, and I would never, ever really want to move back there. The only way that I would move back there is if Jesus, like, forced me into it a little bit. Maybe you can understand that if you're from one of those places. However, as Sarah can attest to, the second that anybody else starts to say something bad about my hometown, anybody who hasn't grown up there, it's like my fists come out, and all of a sudden it's fight time. Like, I could say all the bad things, but nobody else is allowed to. There's something to this reality that we love the dry, dreary, gray places so much. It's fortunate for my hometown that we have brains. We are simply wired to want a place called home, to find our space, our place. And we don't really want to stop until we reach that, until we find that contentment that comes with it. The past few weeks, we've been in a series called Follow the Leader, where we've been looking at the examples of women leaders all throughout the Bible. And last week, I talked about a woman named Naomi. She's the mother-in-law of Ruth from the Old Testament. She was kind of a cranky woman, uh, as I talked about last week. And I told you last week that we were going to look at that story from a different vantage point today. We were going to look at it from the vantage point of Ruth her daughter-in-law. And so that's what we're going to do. The story of Ruth is that of a wanderer who finds a home. And what's interesting as we start to think about this idea of wandering is that even the name for the Israelites is a play on this idea. The, the Israelites were given a nickname 
by themselves, by other people, called Hebrew. You've probably heard it once or twice. It's on hot dog pass pack packages sometimes. You know, that's where you would see it. Uh, but the Hebrew name for, the Hebrew word for Hebrew, I know, right? Uh, but what it actually means is to cross over or to wander. The Israelites are called a people who wander. This is their entire identity that we see, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament. It's a story of people who are wandering from Abraham, leaving the city of Ur to travel to this land that God has promised him, to Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, across the desert, back to the promised land. And then finally, we see it towards the end of the Old Testament, when the people who had been exiled, who had been taken from their homes by the Persians, the Babylonians, etc., begin to return home. The Israelites are a people of wandering. And the question for wanderers is always, am I ever going to find my way home again? That's constantly the thing that they're looking for. Now, Ruth isn't an Israelite by birth. She's actually a Moab, uh, Moabite woman. She's from the country of Moab, which is an enemy of Israel. So there's that. It probably made living in Israel a little uncomfortable for her at times, I would guess. But Ruth, even as a foreigner, joins this family of wanderers when she chooses to leave her home, to leave everything she had ever known, and to travel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Naomi's home, to the town of Bethlehem in Israel. The story of Ruth is the story of a wanderer returning to, to a land that God had given her, the story of somebody finding a home, and it's the story of God's great generosity in providing for an unlikely person. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the story of Ruth this morning. Jesus, I just thank you for your, your spirit. I thank you for your kindness, your generosity to us for your goodness to us. I thank you for what you want to do here today, for what you want to do in our hearts, for the ways that you want to move us forward, that you want to call us to something, for the plan that you have for us today as a church, as individuals. And so we just ask for you to, to come. Come and speak to us. Come and lead us. Come and point us in the direction that you are guiding us. Uh, we are your people. We want to be led by you. And so we ask for that today. Just say that we love you, Jesus, that we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump into the book of Ruth. If you have a Bible, you can open up to that. It's in the Old Testament, just past Judges, just before 1 Samuel. If you don't know where either one of those two are, look in your concordance at the beginning of the Bible, and that will give you a page number. Uh, that might be the easiest way to do it. But today I want to talk about the story of Ruth, and I want to start with perhaps the most well-known of all the verses in Ruth, and maybe even some of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, and that's Ruth 1, 14 through 18. Listen to what it says. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi, Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and to turn back. 
Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me ever so severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Prior to these verses, we're told that Naomi's whole family had died. Her husband, her sons, all of her biological family gone. She's alone in Moab, a place she probably doesn't like by her readiness to leave the country with no one but these two daughter-in-laws who she obviously doesn't actually want to come with her because she tells them like really strongly that they're supposed to go back to their family. She says, I'm kind of done with you. You don't need to come with me. You're good. Go back to your family. I don't have anything for you. And she tries to get them to leave. And one of the daughter-in-laws is like, okay, cool. Game on. I'm, I'm gone. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, grabs a hold and refuses to go back. And What's interesting about this, what's kind of amazing about this, is the loyalty and the faith that Ruth shows right here. She declares that she no longer has a home in Moab. She turns away from everything that she had known, from everybody that she had known, from the way of life that she had known. We have a few people here who have come from other countries. That's kind of a hard thing to do, to move to a different place, to turn away from everything you've known and just to say, fine, I'm just going to embrace this completely. That's pretty tricky. That's a hard thing to do. But she leaves everything and she steps out in faith. And it's in faith that we see her doing this because of the wording that she chooses to use here. Because she says something pretty interesting. Based on what we read about Naomi in this book, I wouldn't say that she's probably the best example of like, good uh, theological faith in God. She's probably a cranky old woman who doesn't really want to be around people. That's not going to give you the best example. And yet Ruth has grabbed a hold of something really powerful when she says here that she's choosing Naomi's God. She sees something important in who Naomi's God is, and she chooses, she makes an oath based on Naomi's God to take on a life of wandering. And I want to say something about wandering right now. You know, wandering isn't disobedience. It's taking the next step that Jesus has for you. There can be a lot of purpose in wandering. Sometimes it's the only thing that you have to do. Sometimes you don't have another option but to just kind of follow God and see where it goes. But that doesn't mean that you're just putting on a blindfold and hoping that you land in a pie instead of landing in a ditch. It means that you're purposefully following the steps that Jesus has laid out in front of you. I'll play on the, the Dorothy thing. It means that you're following the, what, the yellow brick road instead of just wandering into the woods, right? Uh, it means that there's purpose in it. It's a purposeful willingness to take the steps that Jesus has in front of you, even if you don't know where it's leading. And that's what they were doing. Ruth and Naomi reached Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, and by this point, I would guess that, uh, that Ruth is kind of questioning uh, whether she made the right decision in life. Um, I doubt that Naomi was particularly uh, happy and cheery on their ride across donkeys for several days, if not weeks at this point. So they reach uh, Bethlehem. Ruth's like, great, we're here. It's going to be better. And then Ruth, then Naomi 
tail spins down. She gets even worse. She gets even crankier, and she refuses to do anything. They moved back to Naomi's hometown because she had connections, because she knew people, because she had a plan. But when they arrive there, they find out, nope, none of that's true. They've just made it back to a place, and now Naomi refuses to do anything. And so finally, out of desperation, out of hunger, I'm sure, Ruth asks Naomi, okay, what do I got to do to get food? She doesn't know what else to do. This is Naomi's home turf. So Naomi stands up. She steps out of her self-pity, out of her wallowing for just long enough to point out to a field and says, you see those people harvesting out there? You follow them about 20 feet behind them and just pick up the leftovers, pick up the scraps off the ground. And then she goes back to her self-pity, and Ruth does it. Now, what both Ruth and Naomi know is that there is no chance that any self-respecting Israelite woman would ever do the thing that Ruth is doing right here. This is for the bottom. It's for the, the socially like uh, kind of unbearable, the people that, that nobody wants to deal with. This is who would go and do this kind of a job. You would be ashamed to go and do this type of a job. And yet Ruth goes and does it in her desperation. And she was working so hard that Boaz, the owner of the field, notices her. And he goes up to his foreman and he's like, who's that chick? What's going on out there in the field? Who's that lady? And the foreman's like, oh, that's Naomi. Yeah, Naomi, right? Uh, that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. That's Ruth. And so Bo Boaz goes up, and this is the conversation that they have. Chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. When you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz says, but I also know about everything that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. One thing that we might not catch because we're not reading this in the ancient Hebrew. But when Boaz looks at her at the beginning of this conversation, he says, stay right here. The literal translation for those words is you shall not wander. He's literally looking at her and saying, your days of wandering, of blindly taking steps are over. You don't have to search anymore. You found a place. You found a space. This is it. He pledges to take care of her. He pledges to provide for her, to give food, protection to her. And Ruth is astonished. She thought she was just stuck in some dump with her cranky mother-in-law. But in that place, God meets her and shows his kindness to her. Last week, we talked about 
the kindness of God. It's, it's hesed is the word, and it's used all throughout the book of Ruth over and over and over again. It's this kindness that's overwhelming that comes and grabs a hold of you and changes everything for you. And here it shows up again, one of the many times that it's in this book, God in his great mercy and his great kindness has found Ruth and has poured out his goodness onto her. And Ruth knows who she is. What's the first thing she says? The only thing really she says, I'm a foreigner. She knows who she is. She knows she's a widow. She knows she doesn't have a home. She's just wandering about. She knows who she is. She knows she lives on the edges of society here in Israel. And yet, in God's great mercy and his generosity, none of that stops him from pouring out his kindness, his goodness to her. All of the things that culture says should stop her from being blessed. God says doesn't even matter. I still love you. I'm still pouring out my kindness upon you. Let me say this to us, friends. When you reach a place where you're experiencing the kindness of God, where you have a deep experience of the kindness of the goodness of God, it's time to stop wandering. That's the place that you know it's time to start putting down roots, to start to live your life in a whole different way. And that means it's time to begin to risk in a whole different way. Because again, wandering is not disobedience. It's just taking the next step that Jesus has for you until Jesus tells you that it's time to put down roots. And then the game changes. Then everything's different at that place. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Sarah and I's story over the past uh, seven years, seven or eight years or so. Between 2012 and 2017, we moved states three times, and not all of the moves were our uh, preference. Um, it was seminary and then a job at a church that transitioned quicker than we thought, and then we were church planning. And so in 2017, we were in Providence, Rhode Island, and we were beginning to close down the church that we had planted. And we were kind of sad about it because we loved Providence. We loved what we were doing there. We loved the people that we were working with. Uh, we were really happy about the place that God had us at. I mean, we loved the coffee shops. We loved the coffee shops a lot. <laughs> and God sent us to a gray land with not very many coffee shops. No, uh, <laughs> but maybe a little bit. I don't Sorry, Red Barn, sorry. Um, but our prayer in this was for stability, a place to put down roots. We had options of places we could go that we could live for two to three years, and we just didn't really want to do that because that meant uprooting again and moving, and that was just not what we were looking for. That's not what we were praying for. And so we were praying for that. And as we were looking, as we were praying for it, Rob came along. And we had a great conversation, and, and he talked, uh, he gave us an offer to come here that we didn't expect, and it had a lot of promise, it had a lot of things that were exciting to us in it, but it was basically one year with a lot of question marks at that point. And we were like, huh, okay, but we prayed about it. And you know what we felt really, really strongly? That this was where we were supposed to go. We were supposed to go to the place that was super risky in some ways based on what we were hoping for. We wanted Rob to say, here, 
You could be here for 25 years and you never have to move again. Awesome, done, deal. But that's not really the way the church works anyway. But that's not what it was. But as we prayed, we knew this was where God was planting us. We knew that God told us that this was where we were supposed to put down roots. So we came, we risked, and it's been worth it. Because you know what happens in your place of being planted? When your wandering stops, you start to experience your inheritance. Your inheritance starts to become a reality for you. And we've seen that in our family's life. We've seen that here in the church and in our callings as pastors, we've seen that. The reality of risk and inheritance was where Ruth found herself. She was at a place where she needed to choose. She knew God had told her that her wandering was over, but would she put down roots? Would she be willing to risk in a huge way? Because not all the question marks were gone at this point. But Naomi did something strange. Naomi actually got up and started to plan something. She actually started to ask, and she looked around, and she said, I remember Boaz. He was like 12 when I left last. I don't know what he looks like today, but he's a relative of my husband's. There could be something to this. And so she tells Ruth to do this. It's kind of scandalous in that ancient Israel sort of way. She tells, she tells Ruth to go and to take a bath, get on her nice dress, her cloak. Uh, I don't know. I'm adding that. Uh, to put on some perfume, it does say that. So that tells you it's getting a little risque at this point, right? Uh, put on some perfume and then go hide. Go hide at the threshing floor. Don't let anybody see you. Then when they all go to sleep, you go up to Boaz, you creep up, and you lift the blanket off of his feet, and you lay down next to his feet. Because you know what that means, right? No, nobody knows what that means at all, ever. We all hypothesize over what that means, but nobody actually knows what it means. to. Anyway, so I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> that's what she told her to do. And so she goes, and she does it. And this is a huge risk because Boaz and Ruth have had one conversation. She doesn't know if he's married. She doesn't know if he's got plans. She doesn't know anything about this dude, really. But she risks. She knows the steps that she's supposed to take. Can you imagine how shocked Boaz felt when, when he woke up and there was like a tickling at his feet? And then he looks up and then there's a woman laying at his feet that he doesn't even recognize. I mean, we would all be shocked by that, really, right? There's a woman in my bed, well, at the foot of my bed, and I don't even know who she is. Like, what's going on here? And so he, he like, startled, and he's like, who are you? <laughs> you know? And then she says, Ruth, and she says this funny thing. She says, spread your garment over me and redeem me. And you know what Boaz does right here? Boaz could have he could have done a lot of things that would have been okay. He could have gotten up and just ran away because it was a little intense for him. A lot of different things. But he laughed. He just laughed. And he says, you know, you could have chosen the handsomest man in town. You could have chosen the wealthiest man in town. Which, that's some self-confidence for you, right? He's saying that's not him. But he said, you chose me instead. Here's, I think, what Boaz knows. You chose the one who would redeem you. You didn't go for flash. You went for the one that was the sure thing, the one with integrity, the one who would act. 
and act is what he did immediately. And what's all this about redeeming? Because this whole part of the story seems super weird. But in Israelite culture, there's something called a kinsman redeemer. And here's basically what they would do. If every man in an immediate family circle died, and there was somebody who was left, uh, a widow who was left alive, they could marry the widow and continue on the uh, lineage of the spouse who had passed away. So the kinsman redeemer would come in and they would purchase all the property uh, from whoever was remaining. They would save all the relatives who were in danger of being uh, sold into slavery. Uh, They would avenge all the wrongful deaths. And I love that one because it sounds like Batman, basically. Uh, But it's real. It's like part of the law. Uh, And here's the real kicker. They would be obligated to marry the widow. It's just part of the deal. They had to continue on the lineage. Now, we don't know anything about Boaz. We don't know if he had a wife. We don't know if he had kids. But if he did, redeeming Ruth changed everything for him and his family. And it might make us a little uncomfortable to think about this fact, but it was their culture and it's what it is. But if he did have other sons, they lost out. If he had other children, they immediately lost out the second that he redeemed Ruth because that meant that their inheritance was now split. Everything was split from that point on. All that he would gain would go to all of his children, including and especially any children that he had with Ruth. Everything changed in that moment, and yet he did it. In Ruth 4.9, Boaz says, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property, and with the land I have acquired Ruth to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. The book of Ruth ends in a funny way to us. We would never end a book that we wrote this way, but it ends in a genealogy, in a lineage of their family history, a record of the inheritance that God gave to Naomi, to Boaz, and to Ruth. They thought their inheritance was shot. They thought their lineage was over. Everybody had died. There was nothing left to continue on, and yet God moved. Ruth's inheritance was a son named Obed. She probably thought she would never have a kid at this point. She thought that it was beyond dreaming about. There was no expectation of God being this good, this generous to her. It seemed improbable, outlandish. But her willingness to wander, her willingness to risk, her willingness to put down roots allowed her to receive the inheritance that God had for her, and he did it in a big way. She's in the lineage. She's named over and over throughout the Bible in the the genealogy, not just of King David, but of Jesus himself. Her willingness to do all of this brought her into the greatest history that you could ever be a part of. As we come to an end this morning, You and I have an inheritance. 
the second that we make a decision to follow Jesus. The second that we do what Jesus said to Nicodemus in that kind of funny, dark alley conversation late at night that he had 2,000 years ago that we're told about in the Gospel of John where he says that you are born again. You're born again into a family. The second that you decide to follow Jesus, the second that you're born again, you are heirs to the kingdom of God. You are sons and daughters of a king. You don't have to wait for somebody to die because Jesus already did. He died so that you and I could be heirs. You don't have to wait for somebody to redeem you because Jesus has already done it. He rose again so that he could welcome us into the kingdom of God, so that he could share the thing that he had sole inheritance of the entire kingdom. He said, no, split it up. I don't need this whole thing. I want to give it up to everybody who chooses to follow me. I want them to have a part in this. And he offers it all to us. We have an inheritance. We're heirs in a kingdom. But we don't get to control what our inheritance is. We have to be willing to give up our control in order to embrace what it is that Jesus is giving us. The way that Jesus wants to bless you may be different than what you're asking, than how you're asking Jesus to bless you. It might look a little different. It might not fit every box that you're wanting to check off. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. That just means that we need to adjust. It means that we need to change because his inheritance is going to be really, really good. So the question for us as heirs is, are we willing to accept the inheritance that he has for us, not just the one that we were hoping to get? Here's the invitation that I think that Jesus is placing in front of us today, and one that I want to place in front of you as a pastor here. Are you willing to join Sarah and I in claiming this as your inheritance? Are you willing to say that this is the place that Jesus is placing you at? That he's calling you to put down roots right here in Vineyard Church of Hopkinton in the Metro West area? Are you willing to say that this is where your wandering ends because this is the place that you're starting to embrace the kindness, the goodness of Jesus? Are you willing to take that step? It's not without risk, but nothing good is. It's worth it. And I say this with open hands because honestly, if this isn't the place that Jesus has called you to stop wandering, then I want you to find the place where Jesus is going to place you. If there's somewhere else, I want you to find that because that's where you're going to meet him. If it's not here, find the place. But if it is here, are you willing to risk? Are you willing to put it down, to put down your roots and to ask for that inheritance with open arms? And maybe even more importantly, if you know that this is the place, you're called to stop wandering. Stop hoping there's a better option. Stop searching for it. There's not. The place that Jesus has you at is the best option. It might not have all the bells and whistles. It might not have the best preacher in town. Burn on myself. I know, you know, but it might not have all the things that you're hoping for but it is the best place. 
So stop searching for something else other than what Jesus is giving to you. Don't keep wandering. Settle in. Wait for Jesus to show up and ask for more. Keep asking for more. And then, friends, you know what we need to do? We need to accept what Jesus gives us with great joy because it's going to be good, even if it looks different, even if it comes in a different package, it's going to be really, really good. So are you willing to accept his gift to you today with great joy? As the worship team comes back up, let's stand. And this morning, I just want to encourage you as we transition to a time of singing, of worship, that pray, ask Jesus, like, is this where I'm putting down roots? If you already know that, then ask for your inheritance. But if you don't know, ask for wisdom, ask for guidance, ask for him to show up and to show you what it is that he's doing, where it is that he's leading you to. You want to be led by him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we just invite you to come right now. God, I just pray right now for any of us who have felt like we've been wandering, who have been just kind of desperately searching for the place that you want us to stop at. For any of us who are in that place, but this morning we know that you're saying this is it. Give us faith to do it. I pray for clarity for any of us who are looking and asking and saying, God, where is that place? How is it that you're leading me? And I pray this morning for those of us that have put down roots, that have said that we know where our place is, that we will begin even more deeply to experience the generosity of Jesus. Let us experience it today. We don't have to wait for somebody to die in order to inherit what you want to give to us. Thank you for that. And I pray that today that we will begin to understand what an inheritance from you looks like. Open our eyes to see more clearly your movement in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name.